Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. I have you loud and clear. <laughs> Hello. 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 Welcome. Welcome. <laughs> Science. And that is to say physics. Medicine. Nature. Or space. Time. The brain. Life, the universe. Happy nearly new year. This is the Naked Scientist podcast, the show that takes you to the cutting edge of science, technology, and medicine. With me, Katie Haler. And I'm Phil Stanson. In this week's special episode, we're reflecting on some of the science we've reported on this year. Of course, the COVID crisis means that throughout 2020, we've brought you many interviews and updates on the coronavirus, the lockdowns, and the vaccines. But as it's the holidays, we've decided to focus on the other science we've delved into over the past 12 months. We hope you enjoy it, and here's to a brighter 2021. The Naked Scientist podcast is powered by UKfast.co.uk. What better way to start off this reflection on the year than with a New Year celebration? Hogmanay, to be precise. In January 2020, we celebrated Scottish science, and in the festive spirit, I asked head chef Tristan Welch of Parker's Tavern in Cambridge to help me rustle up some traditional Scottish fare. So we're going to make haggis. We've got all the ingredients laid out here. The key ingredient, these fabulous things, lamb's lights or puck. What do you think? That's horrible. (laughs) I hate it. I hate it. A puck or a light is... um, basically everything from the tongue of the lamb right the way down so we've got our lungs the liver the kidney the heart some people use the windpipe some people don't i think it makes a bit of a dirty haggis rather than a clean haggis why does a haggis use all of this for me it's about using the whole animal everything's taken cooked and made completely delicious and stuffed inside a sheep's stomach we're going to trim it down first and the bloodier bits we will discard i'll do it like so i'll show you As Tristan went to work on the assorted lamb bits, I tried not to lose the lunch I'd had earlier. I need to get a stronger stomach. Well, we've got a sheep stomach. Is that strong enough for you? (laughs) I'd really rather it wasn't here. Here we are. This is our lungs, our liver, our hearts, our kidneys. They've all been diced up. We've taken some of the thicker tubes out, let's say. I've put some bay leaves, some salt, and we're just going to cover it with water and simmer it for about an hour. Are they very different to cook with than a normal slab of meat? Gosh, completely different. You have to be very, very delicate with it. But one of the, one of the funny things, the strange things about cooking a lung is it floats on water. <laughs> so it's just difficult to cook. <laughs> well, do you have to push them down? Yeah, yeah. So we'll put some paper on top and then another pan and that will just keep them submerged in the water. As the lamb's puck simmered, it went from bright red coloured to a deeply unappealing grey. I've taken them out of the cooking liquid and I've chilled them down and I've mixed it with some onions, which I've sweated down in suet. I've got some more suet fat, beef suet fat, and I'm going to 
put it all through the mincer. It looks pretty gruesome at this point. I, I, I have to admit, there's nothing particularly glamorous about making a haggis, but wait until the end product. Back in the 1800s, didn't they believe that haggis was an animal that you'd catch and it's got one leg shorter than the other one so it can run round hills? That sounds like something you'd tell to a fool Englishman. You know, I used to live in Scotland and I was called a fool Englishman for many, many years. Actually. Really? Yeah, yeah. Let's mince away then. I can only apologise here because the sound of haggis mix going through a mincer might be the most unpleasant sound I've ever recorded. And there we are. So you add a generous amount of oats to it. It's almost 50-50. A good pinch of salt. So now we add our spices, which is nutmeg, coriander, allspice, black pepper. That's a really important one, but people always have their own spice mix and they keep it very closely guarded secret and to this lovely mix we're just going to add a little bit of our cooking stock which i've had reducing down there on the stove with the mix ready tristan got out the container for the haggis a clean pale white cord textured lamb's stomach we're stuffing away here i've taken a nice tennis ball size of the haggis i've popped it into our lamb stomach and now i'm gently tying around so it forms a little parcel. Trim the string, and there we are. That's our haggis, and it's ready to be poached for about an hour. Are you looking forward to eating it? Yeah, it's gonna be delicious. Now, Phil, I happen to love haggis. Um, I've never actually made it. How, how did it taste, and how was the production process? It, it tasted really good, seriously good. You had to get over the fact that it was in an actual sheep's stomach and you could sort of tell because of the very strange texture and pale white colour of the bag. So once you got past that and through to the nice stuff inside, super good. How easy is it to make at home? Obviously, you were working with a professional chef, but would would you make it by yourself? Yeah, actually, I could do. And the tricky part really was Tristan going the extra mile with the traditional sheep's stomach, which he had to clean and do all this other stuff too. But the actual filling, you toast up your meat, you toast up your spices. It seems pretty doable at home. And if I could ever be bothered to do it and get the skin, I might do. Now, I know it's a cliche, but just like any other year, with February came Valentine's Day. And I found out a few fun facts, actually, about the love lives of humble honeybees from hobbyist and expert beekeeper Stephen Poyser from the Cambridgeshire Beekeepers Association. For instance, Phil, did you know St. Valentine is allegedly one of the patron saints of beekeeping? I did not. Stephen also told me that apparently the term honeymoon has its origins in the idea of feeding the groom honey for a month or one moon cycle to um, build up his strength for making a family. But it turns out that honeybees themselves don't have the best dating lives ever. This time of year, which being February, there are no males at all in the UK. They're produced from an unfertilised egg, so there is no father to a male. Queen lays the eggs 24 days later in the hive. They hatch. Um, they then wait a little while to build up some strength. They're lounging about. They do absolutely nothing in the hive, just eat and just waiting for their time to become sexually mature in order that they can then become what their purpose is. In the meantime, what are the females doing? All the workers are females, and there is only one queen. 
a bigger bee is fed better food in a larger cell in a vertical position to become a queen, and if it's only in a worker cell, it will become a worker. If, for the first three days of its life, the queen is killed, the colony can convert any one of those young larvae and they can produce an emergency queen. Hmm. Doesn't sound like female honeybees get the best deal. Chances are you'll be a worker, putting in all the effort whilst the males just slob around. The queen, once sexually mature, exudes pheromones and then flies into a crowd of sexually mature male drones and they chase her. The fastest flyers get the privilege of mating, about four or five per flight, maybe for three or four days. Mind you, being a male honeybee isn't exactly a picnic. Unfortunately for the males, the ones that are successful and catch the queen, when they mate with her, their genitalia explode and they drop to the ground dead. Uh, It's a one-off experience for the male. (laughs) And when the successful males have mated, the ones that are unsuccessful basically then go back to their own hives or to other hives because they're allowed in and they recuperate and then off they go in again in the next few days. Ouch. And what about the queen in all this? When she's in full production, she could be laying 2,000 eggs a day in the spring. Each one will be fertilised, so those will become workers, uh, which is why within a beehive you can have some bees that are slightly gingery, some that are black and some that are a bit more stripy, because although they've got the same mother, they may have a different father. The queen will live for up to three years All of those eggs that are fertilised are with semen that she has collected during her mating flights at the start of her life, which is why the period of mating is so critical for the bee, because if you get bad weather, then they can't fly, they can't get mated, and colonies are in trouble. And that is a major issue with bees at the moment. The reproductive ability of the queens seems to be declining. They are not living quite as long and not producing as many bees because if they are unproductive, the workers will actually replace her with a new queen and get rid of the old one. Charming. So perhaps honeybees won't be cast as Hollywood romantic leads anytime soon, but at a time when pollinators are feeling the pinch, what can we do to spread the bee love this Valentine's Day? The best thing that anybody can do uh, if they don't want to keep bees is to provide them with food. The spring is the critical time. If they can plant something that's going to produce pollen in particular for January, February or March, that is the critical thing for bees. They can store nectar in the form of honey through the winter to keep them going in the spring, but they can't store pollen as well. It's the protein they need in order to build up their young larvae. So something to keep in mind if you've got a garden or even a window box. Early spring 2020 marked the passing of NASA's mathematical legend, Katherine Johnson. It was her calculations that got men to the moon and safely home again. Indeed, some astronauts refused to fly unless she personally looked at the figures. Here's Adam Murphy's reflection on her contribution to the space race. Katherine Johnson, legendary NASA mathematician, passed away on February 24th at the age of 101. Johnson was renowned for her mathematical abilities. She began work at NASA's predecessor, the National Advisory Committee for Aeronautics, where she was a human computer, reading the black box data from aeroplanes. She spent her time there, segregated by both her race and her gender. Eventually, though, it was impossible to ignore her mathematical skill, 
when she began assisting with NASA space flights, although she still faced pervasive discrimination. She calculated the trajectories rockets needed to be launched at and even the times at which it was possible to launch them at all. Overcoming the barriers faced by black women in the sciences, Johnson's work is part of so many iconic moments in NASA's history. Johnson calculated the trajectory for the rocket and the launch window for Alan Shepard's 1961 mission that made him the first American in space. And when electronic computers began to be used at NASA, astronaut John Glenn refused to accept the figures until they had been checked by Johnson, stating, If she says the numbers are good, I'm ready to go. Johnson was involved in the first mission that put men on the moon, helping to calculate the launch trajectory. And when Apollo 13 announced that, Houston, we have a problem, Johnson's work on backup procedures helped to get them home safely. Johnson's contributions to the history of space travel went relatively unrecognised for decades. But in 2015, she was awarded the Presidential Medal of Freedom by Barack Obama, the highest civilian honour the United States gives. And she and her colleagues were also the focus of the 2016 film Hidden Figures. A fitting honour for someone whose work has impacted so much of modern science. Adam Murphy there. And it's rather exciting to think that NASA is currently working a way to get people back to the moon in 2024. And we're staying in space, in fact, for this next clip, because in April, as the UK was in lockdown, we considered some of the science that you can see just out of your window. I spoke to Steve Swanson, former NASA astronaut who, during his career, helped build the International Space Station and is a former ISS commander. Steve shared his tips for dealing with isolation, as well as what the view is like from so high up. When I first spacewalked, I went out the hatch and I worked my way out to my work site, which happens to be on the very end of the station, the last handrail on that side of the station. I set myself up, getting ready to work, started working, all this, and then the sun comes out, and I get to see the Earth way down below me, you know, the space station off to the side. I gripped my handrail so tight, I didn't move for a minute, because it was like this idea that you're way above Earth with nothing below you, and you should be falling down, and this is not a safe place to be. It's not on a conscious level kind of, of like, I can control this, I can figure it out. There's some sort of innate kind of fear thing, and you don't really have much control over it for a minute until you kind of can calm yourself back down. That view that you get, how does the view you get of the night sky from the ground compare to what you get when you're up there in space? The biggest difference is there is not an atmosphere to look through, so there's no twinkling of the stars. They're all just pinpoints of light. It was not so easy to stargaze on the space station. We don't really have a window that goes up. If you want to look at the stars, which we got to a couple of times because we maybe moved the attitude of the station a little bit, we had to make this area really, really dark. Uh, it's like trying to see the stars from inside your house. If there's any lights on at all, it's going to ruin it. You can't really see anything. So we would, uh, I made a, I said, a blanket with Velcro on the edges that I could put around this whole area and really make it dark. And then we could watch the stars. I don't know about you. Are you in lockdown like so many of us across the world? Yes, we're in a stay-at-home policy here in Idaho. How does that compare to being up there in space with maybe just a couple of other people? Is there similar isolation or is it very different? I guess similar in a way. It's quite a bit easier right now, at least where I am, because I can go out and go for walks or runs or go to the grocery store. I can still do all those things. I just have to be careful about what I do when I do that. 
on the space station, <laughs> I mean, you just can't go outside, right? And so you're stuck inside for almost six months. Have you got any tips then for how to keep, you know, healthy and emotionally okay and generally well? Yeah, so... I, I mean, it's, everybody's going to be different. So that's, I'll just say what works for me. And maybe people can take this and adapt it for what works for them. First thing was stay busy. And that wasn't really a choice on the space station. It was a very busy schedule. It was like a 12-hour workday. So I didn't really think about, oh, I'm, you know, I'm isolated. I can't go back home. I can't do these things. I was enjoying my time up there and I was busy. The next thing is stay in communication with your friends and family. And the last thing I like to say is you definitely uh, have some fun too. Because it's now if you're stuck in your house, you're not going to be doing the same thing you would normally do. And we did that on the space station. We came up with new games to play in this floating environment. And uh, it helped relieve all our kind of stress and tension. Like what sort of games? Oh, man. <laughs> well, we had uh, Nerf dart guns. So we came up with a game of uh, we could do duels. Uh, we found we did, a, we, did a, we did a full-on you know Nerf dart gun war. And the first time we brought out the Nerf dart guns, and it was only nine bullets out of all this. And it took us an hour and a half to find them. So we decided not to do that again. So we came up with everybody gets one bullet and we'll just do duels and stuff like that. Competitions to see who could do the most flips. It was basically what we had a fun day was Sunday. We played all sorts of games. Phil talking to former astronaut Steve Swanson back in April. I've got to say, Phil, that spacewalk sounded terrifying and also incredible. What did you make of it listening back? I had exactly the same reaction. Do you think you'd ever want to do something like that? I'd like to think that I would, but I th- I just think I'd be really scared. <laughs> I'm not sure how vertigo works in space. Welcome to the Naked Gaming Podcast with me, Chris Barrow. And me, Lee Milner. Every month we look at the latest gaming news. This is definitely the kind of study that should have probably been done, you know, 10, 20 or 30 years ago. We review the biggest releases. So start up the game on your Switch, connect to your cart, and you're ready to go. And because there's a simulator for almost anything we play some of the strangest ones available. Okay, so my options are drink a good whiskey, go out and enjoy a hot night, go out and get some fresh air. Let's go with drink a good whiskey. The Naked Gaming Podcast from The Naked Scientists. Download it now wherever you get your podcasts. This week, we're casting our ears back over the best bits of Naked Science this year. Now, shortly, we'll be revising how you cook a cake on a barbecue. And why do cows go around licking each other? Well, stick around and we'll tell you. But before that, in May, we dug into the science of science itself. With a show exploring peer review, the process of scientists analysing research done by others and giving their feedback before it gets published in a journal and released out into the world. Chris Smith spoke to Northwestern's Brian Utsi, who researches the sociology of science and who's been looking into how well peer review works and drawing attention to a potential issue with the reproducibility of studies. The process of peer review works very well in some ways, but there's definitely room for improvement. One, it wants to make sure that the findings are presented and the study was done correctly. Were the right statistics used? Were the right inferences drawn, etc.? And then the other thing that peer review tries to do is to make sure that the result is reproducible, that it can be replicated. So that something that is published today will work for the public tomorrow, for a week from now, for a month from now, even over an entire lifetime. And how reproducible is the science then? If if the whole process is working really well, we should have really, really reproducible papers, are they? 
we're beginning to see that scientific papers reproduce at a rate lower than expected. In psychology, economics, and some parts of medicine and uh, biology, we're learning that about 60% of the papers do not replicate. 60% of the science. If I take a paper off the shelf and I copy what the scientist who wrote the paper did and I try to repeat their work, I get a different answer. Is that what you're saying? That's precisely what I'm saying. So you use exactly the same procedures, you do exactly the same experiment, but maybe you only change the subjects and you find out that the first result was a fluke, not a fact. But that sounds like a disaster. Well, people are beginning to look at this problem in much more detail, trying to find ways in which to improve the process of science so that more papers will replicate, and also trying to find ways to predict whether a paper will replicate or not before it gets into the public domain. But do we know why this is happening, Brian? Good question. Well, you know, the first thing that people looked at was, is this being driven by deceit? And it's very little evidence that it is. It appears that these are honest mistakes in the research process itself. Now, what you have to remember is, you know, some papers will not replicate. You can't expect 100% replication. Science is an innovative field. You're going to have experiments that end up on the cutting room floor, so to speak. But 60% is too high. And currently, people are trying to bring that level down by understanding better the research process itself and training people to learn how to make sure their research replicates before they submit it for peer review. Who are the worst culprits? Currently, we can't give an answer to that because we haven't really begun to look at replication in all branches of science. Science is in an amazingly diverse area of study from power station reliability all the way over to mental health. What we do know is, is that the areas that we have looked at so far do vary in their levels of replication. So psychology and economics, medicine, some areas of biology, up to 60% of the papers appear to be failing. In other areas, it, like engineering, it appears to be lower. How are you actually studying this? And I have to put it to you, is your research reproducible? One way to do this is to improve procedures that scientists would use to make sure that their papers will replicate. Another way to do it is to develop procedures that allow someone who is reviewing someone else's paper to know whether the paper will replicate or not. My approach to that has been to develop an artificial intelligence system that reads papers, finds cues in the papers that human beings otherwise miss when they're reviewing the paper, but the AI system can tell us correlate with an accurate prediction about whether the paper will or will not replicate. And does it work? It, uh, it works approximately 80% of the time. But the important thing is, is that for the papers that it feels most sure about, because the artificial intelligence system gives you a level of confidence in its prediction, for the top 10% of its most confident papers, it's right 100% of the time. Brian Utzi. Phil, do you have any thoughts listening back to that piece? Well, it's certainly an important issue, this reproducibility crisis, Katie, and key to the foundations of science that results should be uh, easily, results should be the same when you do the same experiment. So something that's ongoing and hopefully people in various fields are going to try and fix with more rigor. We're stepping out into the field now, literally a field, to consider the cow. And if you hadn't thought of cows as the most communicative of creatures, <laughs> sorry, think again. 
It turns out that cows lick each other on the face and neck to say hello. And back in the summer, Eva Higginbotham heard from researcher Gustavo Monti from Universidad Austral de Chile, who used this licking behaviour to better understand the hierarchical relationships between cows in a herd. In these trying times, I can't really think of anything more relaxing than sitting in a field and watching a group of cows lick each other. And that's exactly what members of the research team did, every day, several hours a day, for a month. Noting down who licked who, who got the most licks, who got the least licks, and how this changed over time. But the question remains, why? One of the motivations of this study has to do with one consequence which is arising from the way that we are managing cows, let's say in the Western type of production especially. So our systems are very intensive nowadays and as a part of the management, animals are group and regroup very often for different purposes. So this is a problem in the way that because to establish this hierarchy and these relationships for a group of cows, it takes some time. The problem is once they reach this sort of equilibrium or status of recognition, then because of the management, some of the cows or, or even the leader is removed from the group and then new cows or new animals uh, came to the, this group. Therefore, they have to reestablish all the process all over again. And this has happened several times within a year, within a group and within the life of the cows. Previous studies have shown that the constant reshuffling of animals can make them stressed out, and farmers have known for a long time that stress can have a big effect on milk production. The researchers wanted to understand the effects of this reshuffling on the social dynamics of the herd, and realised that they could use licking events as a window into these social dynamics. So, they observed the cows without interfering. We are some sort of big brother, yeah. (laughs) And plugged the data into a computer to perform a modern technique called social network analysis, where each cow is represented by a node, and they could scrutinise the complex web of relationships over time. Kind of like Facebook for cows. It's the same technique that is used nowadays with big data, no? So when Facebook or whatever company wants to evaluate who are your relationships, with whom you are working, or with who you are contact. So it's it's the same sort of techniques that were used for our situation. One of the important findings of this study was that unexpectedly dominant cows licked more than the younger cows into the group. And it seems that this could be explained that the leader in some way is offering this as a sort of action to reward the low-level animals to keep, let's say, the cohesion. I think one important finding that this social grooming in both ways can establish individual bonds between members of a group, and this also enhances the overall social cohesion of the herd. They also found that cows that were new additions to a herd were licking more often and hypothesised that maybe they were doing favours and trying to be friendly to get down with the new group. Interestingly, though, the cows that did the most licking received the least licks in return. This might be because licking another cow is something of an investment, and if you go around licking everybody, it might suggest that you're not going to invest in specific relationships, and so the other cow might not bother investing in you either. 
Overall, Gustavo and the rest of the team suggest that licking can be used as a positive marker for wellness within a herd. If there's lots of licking, things are stable and everyone is content with their friends. If there isn't, things are going wrong in the complex social and emotional relationships of the herd. And Gustavo argues that farmers should be mindful of this important aspect of cow's welfare when reshuffling the groups. Eva Higginbotham speaking to Gustavo Monti from Universidad Austral de Chile. Katie, how did you find that story? Was it was it moving by any chance? Oh, Phil, I feel like maybe you've outdone me in the moo pun uh, was. I thought it was really nice. I get a lot of joy from thinking that cows go around licking each other. It brought a little cheer to my heart. Now, roughly once a month or so, we like to break with the standard show format and bring you a Q&A show for science guests who we throw some of your questions at. But this summer, we upended this idea and put our questions to a few of you. Phil, you were the quiz master and Adam was in um, Encyclopedia Corner, as you termed it. How was it actually putting questions to the listeners rather than the other way around? You know, it was a real moment of catharsis. Finally, we get to quiz someone else. In seriousness, it was a great time. And I think our contestants did extremely well with the questions that we threw at them. Here's a snippet from that particular show where Adam recounts some rather disturbing science, actually. So I'm going to talk to you about a really weird plague that happened. And this was in 1518 and it was in Strasbourg in what's now France. This one woman suddenly started dancing and she couldn't stop dancing. Like far beyond where you should pass out from exhaustion or where you just think, I'm tired and this isn't fun anymore. The dancing plague of 1518. It wasn't just her. People started to join in and there was between 50 and 400 people in this town in France were stuck dancing. Um, We don't know for sure, but there's a good chance that some of these people died because they couldn't stop dancing. I mean, did they all get very knocked up on hard drugs? You're not actually a million miles away. So there's a fungus thing that grows on corn and wheat called ergot. Ergot can break down and give off basically LSD. And there's a thought that they were eating these contaminated wheat and maybe some of them just ended up on the worst acid trip and then they ended up dancing until they died. That's one theory. The other one is that just mass hysteria happens sometimes. People get caught up in horrible versions of mob mentality. What's happened to Ergot now? Is it still around? It's still around. And whenever something serious and mass hysteria happens, people tend to blame it on Ergot. Pretty gruesome stuff. Adam there talking about the dancing plague of 1518. Well, from dancing to DNA, and July 2020 marked a rather special centenary. DNA pioneer Rosalind Franklin's birth. And to celebrate, we brought you a show all about DNA, X-ray crystallography, as well as Franklin's life and work. And Eva Higginbotham heard about Rosalind's early life from her sister, Jennifer Glynn. I think it was always clear from the start that she was going to be a scientist. She loved developing photographs at home. My grandparents had a dark room she could use, and my mother was keen on photography. She enjoyed actually using the chemicals and doing it. It was a great pleasure to Rosalind as a child. Rosalind's enthusiasm for science took her all the way to Newnham College at the University of Cambridge, one of only two colleges at Cambridge at the time that was open to women. 
Rosalind went to Newnham in 1938. Everyone was delighted. Even my grandfather, who was perhaps the most conservative member of the family, gave her a present of five pounds, which was a lot of money in those days. I went to see her in her first year, went with my parents, and I'm sorry to say that I was only eight, and all I can remember is the baby ducks on the river. But I did stay with her for a weekend when she was a research student. She was a marvellous hostess. We saw all the standard Cambridge sites and went on the river. Being imaginative, she also took me to see the Newnham Baker stirring a great vat of dough, which I also remember with tremendous pleasure. She worked very, very hard at Newnham, but being outside was always important to her. Hockey and tennis and cycle rides and skating, she was very keen on. But most of her time really was spent on very hard work. She was a very perfectionist in her nature, was always determined to do extremely well. It may be surprising to find how very nervous she was about exams, very unsure of herself in that way right from when she thought she wouldn't get a school scholarship, right through to university exams and even her PhD, she thought would fail. Of course, she always did extremely well, but um, it was a worry. Never anything came easily to her. She always worked very hard for it. The university had come a long way in how it treated students who were women, but there were still remnants of the past to contend with. There were occasional lecturers that would still address their audiences as gentlemen, quite regardless of who was there. After completing her degree in 1941, Rosalind was awarded a research fellowship at Newnham and she worked for a time at a physical chemistry laboratory at the university. But the Second World War was in full swing and she had to do some war work, which she was very keen to do. She worked for a firm called the British Coal Research Association, where she investigated the structure of holes in coal, which helped in the manufacture of gas masks. The work she did there counted for her PhD. She was very fortunate in getting a post in France. She loved France. And she was lucky enough to find a post in a French lab which was investigating the structures of coal and was doing it with the technique of X-ray crystallography, which she was able to learn there. Um, It gave a sort of continuity to her researches because it was always connected with the structure first of coals, then later of DNA and then of viruses. And although she was not a biologist by training, but a chemist. It was the same techniques that she was then able to apply to biology. After four very happy years in France, Rosalind took up a position at King's College London, where she did her famous work on DNA. However, being a woman in science didn't come without its challenges. It was certainly male-dominated. You have to work even harder and be even more sure of what you were doing. That possibly may have inhibited her from guessing in the way that, say, Crick and Watson did. You had to be terribly sure before you published anything. She did find the male atmosphere at King's very uncongenial, to say the least. 
I asked Jennifer if she thought Rosalind would be surprised at the attention that her life story and family story have received over the years. Yes, it's a simple answer. Uh, I think she would have been totally amazed, actually. She would have been very amazed at the idea that she became a sort of feminist icon. It was not, I think, anything in her mind at all. She was just a scientist who wanted to do it all she could in that way, although nothing would please her more than the fact that it perhaps encourages girls into science. Jennifer Glenn there, sister to Rosalind Franklin. The Naked Scientist podcast is produced in association with Spitfire, cost-effective voice, internet and IP engineering services for UK businesses. Find out how Spitfire can empower your company at spitfire.co.uk. Music in the programme is sponsored by Epidemic Sound. Perfect music for audio and video productions. We're taking a trip down memory lane to reflect on the variety of science we've brought you this year. Still to come, what's going on for some people who suffer from very painful periods. And we get the lowdown on Sir David Attenborough's new film, A Life on Our Planet. But first... Who doesn't love a socially distanced barbecue? We went Barbie bananas over the summer and set about investigating the chemistry of cooking, the science of tastes and flavours. We thought we'd barbecue something that you might not expect, though. So I, I remember that day, Phil. I was in the studio feeling a bit jealous as Chris was outside in what was for a moment glorious sunshine. Now, you did it, Katie, because you said the sun is shining And guess what? In traditional British fashion, it's raining. It has literally gone from sunshine to rain. You would not believe it. I am, of course, here with Tristan Welsh. He's been actually knocking up this cake because we are going to cook a cake on a barbecue. If you didn't believe that it was possible, it can be done. So just remind us, what have you put into these cakes, Tristan? How are you actually doing this? Well, first of all, I've got to say, um, this is not the first time I've ever cooked a pineapple upside down cake on a barbecue, but it certainly is the first time I've cooked in the rain. (laughs) So I've taken the butter and now what you can hear is the sugar and butter in there together. That's being creamed together. So it's a basic sort of sponge mix. To that, I add our eggs, give that a jolly good mix, then our flour. And they're using self-raising flour. Now I've taken tinned sliced pineapple. I've taken the top off poured out the juice, drank it actually, Uh, um, put a one slice of pineapple back on the base with some golden syrup and a cherry in the middle of the pineapple slice and I'm just about to pop this cake mix on top of it. We give that a jolly good mix and that will be quite a tight mixture so then we add a couple of tablespoons of milk and that loosens it up. In the bottom of the tin I put in about a tablespoon of golden syrup and one slice of pineapple with one cherry in the middle. (laughs) And then you're going to spoon in what, fill the tin to the brim with a mixture? Yeah. Okay, and that then goes, we've got a barbecue with a lid. That's probably important, is it? Because we're basically using the barbecue as an oven. It's vital. So the actual thought process behind it is the heat from below is quite aggressive. So that's going to boil the syrup and the syrup will protect it and prevent it from burning. Um, The lid creates the oven-like effect. So it will bake as an oven, um, but be able to take the aggressive heat from below. Temperature gauge says about 200C. How long do you anticipate we're going to need to put this on for? I'd say about 15 to, to 20 minutes, to be honest. 
Well, Tristan's got one of the cakes out. It's on a plate in front of us. Do, do you want to do the honours, Tristan? You cut us a slice. Yeah, absolutely. Here we are. So I've just decanted the cake out onto a plate. I've pulled the paper away. I'm just going to cut it in half now. It just looks amazing. Oh, seen from this, he's cut it in half. And the pineapple on the top, the cherry turned beautifully gooey in the middle. Nice wasp buzzing around for you, Eleanor. <laughs> yeah, well, I was just trying to catch it, actually. The rain has stopped, which is amazing. Just You, you can work wonders, Tristan. You, you catch it, I'll cook it. <laughs> <laughs> right, are we going to go for it? Yes, have a fork each. Eleanor, oh, have a... Oh, my goodness, this looks incredible. I'm just going to use my fingers, you know. Oh I'm, I'm going to try and get a bit that's got some cherry and some pineapple. Mm. Oh, my goodness. Oh, this is amazing. Wow. Wow, Katie, you don't know what you're missing. Mm. You haven't um, cake before you've had your sausages. Oh, yeah, yeah I haven't had the sausages yet. I'll have one of them in a minute. Chef Tristan Welch there with Chris, as well as insect expert Eleanor Drinkwater. You know, Phil, I didn't actually get any of that cake. And I'm feeling a bit hard done by because you've had haggis, Chris had cake. Maybe 2021 is my year to eat some of the food that we, that we cook on The Naked Scientist. You know, I think that's more than reasonable and listeners if you hear a show that's all about the science of chocolate i think you know why (laughs) yeah and you'll know who's presenting it as autumn got into full swing and kids went back to school here in the uk the naked scientists turned our attention to the science of menstruation and although many people experience manageable periods each month or so that's not the case for everyone Sophia shared her experience of endometriosis which just to warn you is pretty tough to listen to And then Katie spoke to gynaecologist Caroline Overton. Before experiencing endometriosis, I didn't know that such pain was possible. Every month I would find myself on the floor, fluttering in and out of consciousness, as an invisible hand seemingly worked to slice my lower abdomen apart with a series of blunt knives. I was so scared. The first doctor I saw told me, some people just have painful periods. Fortunately, I didn't listen. Endometriosis affects about 10% of people with ovaries worldwide, where cells like those that line the womb, the endometrium, grow where they shouldn't, like on the ovaries or fallopian tubes. These misplaced cells respond to the same cyclical hormonal cues as the endometrial cells in the womb, so with each menstrual cycle they grow and then shed. Only, because they are outside the womb, they can't leave the body through the vagina and instead can cause irritation and pain. And this, in turn, can lead to the growth of scar tissue and adhesions between organs. I am now post-op and things are much better. But there is no cure, only management. And I worry every day that a resurgence of that immobilising pain, those days of lonely desperation and fear await me just around the corner. That was Sophia there sharing her experience. And you also heard from Eva Higginbotham. Caroline, is it common with endometriosis to experience that level of pain? Well, thank you for sharing Sophia's experiences. I'm very glad that she didn't take the doctor's advice that it was normal, very much wasn't. And that sort of severe pain where she is in agony is not normal and is classic of endometriosis. In Sophia's case, she had surgery, which helped. What are the treatment options short and long term with this condition? 
So the main aim of treatment now would be about picking it up as early as possible so that hopefully you can avoid the long-term complications such as adhesions and infertility. So the current guidelines are to actually make the diagnosis based on the symptoms. So if somebody likes a fear coming along and saying, I'm doubled up with my period, that should flag up that, that, that she might have endometriosis. There are painkillers. There are treatments like the hormonal pill. Basically, you want to make the periods either disappear completely or shorter and much lighter in order to control the endometriosis and the symptoms. Are there fertility implications here? There are fertility implications. Endometriosis starts as little pimples uh, in the pelvis, which are slightly sticky as they grow and develop. And those can cause the organs to stick together, which we call adhesions. And the adhesions then can get in the way of the egg escaping from the ovary and or getting down the fallopian tube, causing fertility in the longer term. What we don't know is why some women get severe adhesions and in other women it seems to have a much more benign course where it doesn't progress so much. What are the theories? There may be a sort of family link there, so an inherited problem. You are more likely to have endometriosis if a family member of yours has got endometriosis and it's more likely to be severe. We think it may be linked with the amount of period Think of that period sort of um, slightly overwhelming the body's immune system that is clearing up the blood cells from inside the pelvis. The other one is that there's an immune modification that you've got a slightly altered immune response where in some ways those immune cells are not clearing up as well. Caroline Overton speaking to me and you also heard from Eva and Sophia. Now, Phil, it is the new year period So I've got to ask, it's traditional, do you have any New Year's resolutions you've been pondering on? I actually have just bought a very small orange tree from the garden centre down the end of the road. And my New Year's resolution is to keep it alive at all costs for at least half a year. That's my goal. That is so lovely. It's really nice to have a positive resolution rather than trying to quell behaviour that you sort of perceive as negative. I think that's really nice. I mention it because a few years back, we had King's College London psychologist Ben Gardner on the show talking about New Year's resolutions. And this is what he had to say about the 1st of January in terms of behaviour change. It's helpful in, in one aspect in that it gives us something specific. We know that we are going to start our behaviour change attempt on the 1st of January. And it's a general principle of behaviour change that the more specific your plans are with regards to not only what you're going to do, but in what situation you're going to do it, the more specific our plans are in that respect, the more likely we are to stick to it. But I think, on the other hand, I don't think there's anything particularly special about the 1st of January. So it's useful to have a concrete date in mind with regards to when you're going to start changing your behaviour. But it doesn't need to be the 1st of January. You could equally set your behaviour change start date as, say, the 1st of February or the 1st of March or any day in the year. That clip really strikes a chord with me because... The idea of trying to change my behaviour in chilly, dark midwinter, just it's just unrealistic. So I think I'll probably wait for a nice summer day. Has that inspired you to create any particular resolution? Well, kind of. Uh, I've asked Father Christmas for one of those um, pedal things that you can put under your desk 
to kind of counteract how sedentary I am in the day with, you know, working on the computer. So you can do some cycling sort of uh, whilst you're stationary. If I don't end up using it in January, (laughs) maybe my resolution will be to start using it at some point throughout the year. On Friday the 13th of November, yes, really Friday the 13th, an 11-metre asteroid skimmed through our outer atmosphere. But astronomers only spotted 2020 VT4, as it was called, the following day. And news out recently suggests the Sun is pushing another asteroid called Apophis closer to us over the next 50 years than we'd like. Adam Murphy has been looking at objects in space like these that come a little too close for comfort. Space is big, really, really big. And it's also, as you might have noticed at night, pretty dark. That means there's a lot of room for things to be hiding out there in the black of space. Some of those things are asteroids and comets, and some of those often get closer to Earth than you might think. Objects that get near to Earth are called imaginatively near-Earth objects. And they can get close. In 2004, an asteroid about 5 metres across shot by us, flying below some of our satellites. And if they were to hit, they could cause some real damage. It was an asteroid that killed the dinosaurs, after all. And in 2013, a bus-sized object exploded in the skies near Chelyabinsk in Russia. It blew out windows and caused tens of millions of pounds of damages. So, it's important to be vigilant. Many of these objects come from the asteroid belt, which is a belt of asteroids that sits between Mars and Jupiter. Usually those rocks are content to just sit out there, but sometimes there are big collisions between them, and those collisions can send some pretty big pieces of debris our way. Once they've been knocked out of the asteroid belt, they continue to orbit the Sun, but in long, loopy, very oval-shaped orbits, and those orbits can intersect with the Earth's orbit. The gravity of the Earth and the Sun can even help bring the asteroid back around, like a wasp that refuses to leave you alone on a summer's day. And because space is really dark, we don't always see these things. In 1989, another asteroid called 4581 Asclepius was as close as 700,000 kilometres away, which is about twice the distance between the Earth and the Moon. But if it had hit, it would have devastated the planet. And we didn't detect it until it was nearly on top of us. One asteroid in particular has been on our radar for quite some time, and we'll be ignoring Earth's personal space on several occasions in the next few decades. It's called 99942 Apophis. Supposedly, it's called that because the discoverers were fans of the Stargate SG-1 TV show and named it after one of the big baddies. It's certainly how I know the name, anyway. It's about the size of the Eiffel Tower and in 2029 will pass under some of our satellites and it will get close again in 2036 and then again in 2068. Although the further into the future you go, the less certain the details are. For a while, this was looking like the most likely contender to hit the planet and cause some damage. At one point, it ranked a four on what's called the Torino scale, where one is, we're fine and there's nothing to worry about, and ten is... We should prepare for everything to turn into Mad Max now. But there are plans to deal with anything coming our way. The old plan was to just blow it up with a nuclear device. But as the General says in one of my favourite movies, Independence Day, that risks turning one dangerous falling object into many. The new plan is to just give them a push. 
NASA has a mission planned called the Double Asteroid Redirection Test, which will launch in the middle of next year and is going to a pair of asteroids called 65803 Didymus to test our rock-pushing capabilities. Severe asteroid impacts are only predicted to happen once every 100,000 years. But if we should win the worst galactic lottery, and that's going to happen soon, well, because I don't know about you, but I wouldn't last too long in a post-apocalyptic wasteland. Thanks for that cheery nugget there, Adam. Now, here's something for you to watch over the holidays. Sir David Attenborough had a recent documentary out this year called A Life on Our Planet. The natural world is fading. The evidence is all around. It's happened in my lifetime. I've seen it with my own eyes. This film is my witness statement and my vision for the future. The story of how we came to make this our greatest mistake and how, if we act now, we can yet put it right. Chris Smith spoke to Colin Butfield from WWF, who's the film's executive producer. Well, when making the film, we realised sort of very, very early on that David has had this extraordinary life. Because of the time he was born and the job he had, we figured that he's probably seen more of the natural world than any other human being who has ever lived or, or will ever live. Because before him, obviously, there's no air travel. And now so much of the natural world has been lost. The unique life he's had means he's seen something that nobody else has seen. And in the process of doing so, of course, he's witnessed this enormous scale of change on our planet, probably a bigger change to the natural world than any other time in the last 10,000 years. So he has a unique witness, a unique perspective as a result of that. And that that was a very appealing storytelling lens, because I think when we talk about these massive global changes, it's quite hard for people to, to understand, to grasp. It feels huge. Putting it in the context of one human's lifetime makes that somehow easier to understand. What will a viewer actually see? How have you done this? Because obviously, Sir Dave is now in his 10th decade. He can't travel in the way that he once did. So how have you managed to capture the spirit of an Attenborough doco and do it in a way that brings people the action and has very much his fingerprint on it? You're quite right, David's 94, he's 92, 93 when we were making this. He still did travel out to Kenya, to Masai Mara, someone he'd been to many times in the past to sort of show what's changed, and also out to Chernobyl. It's a very different landscape and environment for him. But we start and end the film in Chernobyl and showing the change that's happened there from obviously the human civilization effectively being evacuated and left to destroy to nature reclaiming the territory. And we intersperse those sort of location shots with some archive going back to his famous sequences in his career and also footage from today that shows some of those changes. So yeah, he's one of the first people to film and present from coral reefs. And then we've shown the modern footage of, of the same coral reefs bleaching. We've got footage of him in Borneo 40 years ago um, finding orangutans and then footage of Borneo today and showing what's changed there. So you get that sort of um, juxtaposition of what he saw then and what he saw now. But also, of course, being David Attenborough, he's got his obviously his great expertise is the natural world. So when describing even changes that are very human centric, he often uses examples of nature to illustrate that. When talking about the impact of, of meat consumption on the natural world, he chose to explain it from the Serengeti and explaining the context of the ratio of predator to prey animals and how much space prey animals need. There's a hundred prey animals on the Serengeti for every predator and therefore the space that's needed effectively to produce meat protein, using that to illustrate the changes that are happening in the human world. So we're able to have the gorgeous wildlife sequences and place lots of them in a very human context. 
there is this phenomenon dubbed the Attenborough effect. When David Attenborough highlights something, it usually galvanises attention and, and hopefully also translates into action. The best example being plastics. Are there any things that you have purposefully picked for this one, which you're thinking we want to highlight very important issues and make people change? Because it was obvious with the plastic doco that if you show that cause and effect, you immediately show people what they need to do to try to help. Yeah, the two things we really, really wanted to get across in this were probably the biggest tipping point issues facing our planet. So the biggest places where things will go into freefall, the changes are happening so fast. Those two examples are the change in the Arctic sea ice and how fast the world's warming, very visually showing the change that's happened during David's filming career, actually not even just his lifetime, going to visit locations where you would expect to be surrounded by ice and obviously the wildlife that is on the ice and uses the ice for hunting and the ice not being there. And the second one was was tropical forests, in particular how fast tropical forests have been declining showing that the Amazon in particular, as an example, is approaching a tipping point where it's the amount of rain that's needed to self-sustain that that rainforest is being lost through lack of rainfall and also deforestation and fires. And it faces a moment where it might tip into a, a, a dry savanna. And then placing those issues back to ourselves, in particular, highlighting levels of meat consumption and investment in things like fossil fuels. Although the, each of those things are a bit more complex than purely a plastic bottle um, or plastic carrier bag, which has obviously had a big effect because it's extremely tangible. I think here we wanted to get a sense of the whole scale of the destabilization of our planet and what we need to do to stabilize it again. And that's a bigger, more complex thing. But I hope and feel, and certainly the reaction in the first few days seems to suggest we've got we've got something across. Colin Butfield there speaking with Chris Smith. And that's it. That's the end of the show this week and this year. Thank you so much for listening. Next week, we're going to take you on a journey through some extra special science stories we reported on in 2020. From chatting with a space shuttle astronaut to a 46,000-year-old ice bird, we've got some curious tales from our Naked Scientist family of podcasts that we've made throughout 2020. The Naked Scientist comes to you from Cambridge University's Institute of Continuing Education and is supported by Rolls-Royce. I'm Katie Haler. Thanks very much for listening. Until next time, here's to a happy new year. Thinking about your next career move in research and development? Then it's time to make your move to the UK. The nation that's investing £20 billion in R&D over the next two years. The nation that's home to four of the world's top research universities. The nation where great talent comes together. Visit gov.uk forward slash great talent to see how you can work, live and move to the UK.